Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrownauts. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is our ninth episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure, and budding cult classic. And indeed the most cult of that cult classic. We have an update, Hasten. A bit of business before we jump into the segment we'll be talking about today. A thrilling update about the Zip-E powder packets, the little paper powder packets, which we discussed in the previous episode. We reached out to a friend of the show. We were provided with a prop clearance listing for this particular item, which shows a list of alternate names that were cleared by the legal department because they couldn't simply use an emergency packet. If you look at the design in the film, it's very clearly mimicking the graphic design of an emergency packet. And so I thought I would share some of the other names that the legal department at Disney cleared for use in the film. Dashy, Wondersnap, <laughs> Wizzy, Wiz E, <laughs> Spectorama, Zippy, and Zip E. So spelt both ways. So those were both deemed cleared for use in the film. And of course, they selected the Zip E powder packet. More energy for you. What this tells me is that my theory that I proffered in the last episode, while not impossible that they were trying to reference the zippity-do-for-you line that Frank offers in the very same scene he uses the zippy packet, it's seeming more like they just needed a name that wasn't emergency, and this was one of the options, and they chose it. I mean, this is why I could never do movie production. Because, like, I couldn't imagine being like, okay, well, we want to use some sort of powder. And I'd be like, you can't even see it on the screen. Like, just give them, just give them a powder and tape off the C and it can just be emergence, emergent and just write over it with a Sharpie. Or just a blank paper thing. And it's a home concocted special mix of Frank Walker powder. The plus logo slapped right on it. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, just get a get your rubber stamp of the plus ultra logo that they used to stamp the 1952 box and just put it on everything. Yeah, I think what's so funny is that they couldn't get that clearance. But then you look in other parts of the film and there's completely unsponsored like other major brands like in just after that scene when she opens up the fridge. That fridge is full of like Energizer batteries. We don't know that that's not a sponsorship. Yeah, it could it could it could have been. <laughs> if anyone listening works for the Energizer Corporation or the Coca-Cola Corporation and would like to dig through the files at work to see if there was an official relationship between the Tomorrowland production and those fine corporations. Come on the show. Let's talk about it. Same thing with Gold Bond medicated powder. I think I'd be most interested to hear from them. If we can get Gold a personal Bond. personal favorite. If we can get Gold Bond on the horn, that would be a real <laughs> scoop. That would be a coup for us. But moving out of the realm of esoterica and small minutia, today we'll be talking about some really significant movements of story. Yes, today, for those following along, the runtime we're covering will be from 1 hour 26 minutes and 37 seconds to 1 hour 37 minutes and 57 seconds, or just over 11 minutes in which the truth of this mystery plot 
is at last revealed. In this section of the film, over these 11 minutes, we actually have a lot of stuff in the screenplay that was cut. And so I'm excited. We're going to explore a lot of these scenes that didn't quite make it either into the film or into the bonus features that were included with the physical distribution of the film. There's some that are just a couple of lines of dialogue here and there to entire speeches that were bridged over just by pairing the two lines on either side of them. So there's a lot more deleted material in this section and in some of the ensuing sections we'll talk about in future episodes than really anywhere else in the rest of the movie. Today we open on black with the voice of Athena echoing through. Casey, wake up. And when we fade in soft focus into sharp relief, we see Casey hanging down from the sideways chair that she's strapped into. The seatbelts have her suspended up. She wakes up and she's immediately grinning. She's thrilled. She's just had the experience of her life. And there's still a lot of hope and optimism in her face right here, even as she's getting out of the capsule. And then she looks around and all of that is very suddenly dashed and there's this revelation both for the characters and the audience that Tomorrowland is not what was promised the city itself and for some viewers the film one thing that I really appreciate about this scene is the not only the music that Giacchino has composed that is sort of that high upper strings questioning kind of what happened kind of mystery music but in addition the way they dressed that Academy of Arts and Sciences building, anyone who's been to Disneyland or Disney World or whatever else that has seen a not freshly maintained Tomorrowland just knows they can see it in the back of their mind, that black sludge that just gets over all of these white spaces after they haven't been touched or polished or whatever for a while. And I love that when you do that first pan out in that first scene behind them on that building, there's just this buildup of black sludge. Like, you know, something is wrong right away. And uh, I, that was just one of those things that like, I remember seeing it the first time in the theater that really hit home for me the whole like, oh man, they nailed this like broken down Tomorrowland aspect like perfectly. That's something I feel most people can see if they look up any picture of Space Mountain, which is a white building that is very difficult to maintain. Well, usually it's white, but when the building is white, it has that, like you said, signature black sludge. And I love that they not only incorporated it into the physical set in Valencia, but they also did a lot of digital set extensions, not even for the far distant city, but that main building that they're on the catwalk of they digitally extended that as well. So they matched the digital sludge to what I assume was physically dressed sludge. It could be all digital sludge. We don't know. But it really does evoke that feeling of an unmaintained theme park. And so for Disney Parks fans who already have skin in the game for this movie, I think this does call up certain emotions. And again, immediately tells you what's going on in the story without a word being spoken. Uh, the moment-to-moment character of this scene was a little bit differently described in the screenplay, and I wanted to break down how it was originally envisioned, even if overall the sum total of this moment comes out the same. The way that reveal happens, how the disappointment spreads and sinks in, was originally conceived a little bit differently. So the script describes, Casey steps out of the spectacle, the spaceport, familiar from her vision, but there's something off about it. For one, there's no bustling hive of activity. It's 
abandoned. More importantly, while there are still incredible spacecraft here, they're clearly not in service. And then Casey turns to Athena and says, it's real. I'm really here. Athena nods, offering a reassuring smile, although she's clearly not as enthusiastic. And now Casey spots Frank, standing on the edge of the spaceport, looking off into the distance at the city, silhouetted by the rising sun behind it, the orange light of dawn creating the most unimaginable feeling of wonder and beauty that we have ever seen. Casey quietly walks up to Frank, stands beside him. He is, in a word, overwhelmed. Whatever happened here, whatever this place meant to him, it's everything, and he's finally home. Then Casey says, it's beautiful. On Frank, a beat, and then he sighs. <sighs> it was. Casey doesn't quite understand what that means, but it's disquieting nonetheless. Frank shakes off the nostalgia, turns to Athena, who stands respectfully behind them. Now what? And so this is when we move into the existing version of the sequence, and I have a sense that some of this reaction from the characters may have indeed been filmed, because if you look at how these shots are edited, that description of Frank literally shaking off his nostalgia, you see Clooney do that. He shudders a little bit as he turns from the city back to uh, Casey and Athena, and uh, I think it's really interesting that there was this concept of the disappointment being in the lack of activity, the lack of people, the lack of function, the lack of launching spaceships, but visually it was still being described in this golden sunlight, the idea that they could still see what it would become. And I think that's an interesting nuanced concept, but having it look as it does in the movie, bleak, gray, overcast, void of color, I think it tells the story they're trying to tell even faster than it would have trying to do something like this. The angle that I really like about the concept that's in the screenplay is, is that, again, for Parks fans, this is another common thing that we are familiar with, right? The sitting empty, abandoned tracks, knowing that there was once, you know, you know, moving craft along them, right? I think it could play sort of to the same to that sort of same idea. Ah, uh, the, the people mover dilemma. But I much, which both coasts are getting to experience right now. <laughs> it's an interesting, like, I think what they ended up with ended up being way better, but I don't know. There's part of me that still likes this idea that Casey is such an optimist. She is such an optimist that when she sees what it is, she's still wowed. Absolutely. I mean, it's one thing to imagine something and then to physically stand there. The feeling of physically being in a space, the embodied experience can't be compared to any virtual experience, no matter how high fidelity to reality it is. And so there's absolutely a, a, a sense of that. And you see it on Britt Robertson's face. Like she's still excited and you see the expression shift subtly as the realization dawns in. And certainly, you know, if I was there, I would want to believe personally so much in what I had seen and what I had been made to believe, I would probably first assume, oh, it must be an off day. But the more you look, the more you realize this. And I do think that speaks to the necessity of this looking as run down and bleak as it does, because it leaves no real room for those side queries about, oh, oh maybe, maybe this, maybe that. No, the more you look at it, the more you realize this is just not 
functioning how it once did. This is dilapidated. This is an abandoned mall. There's such a modern predicament about that kind of imagery. And it's reflected really well here. When, when we talk about a little bit of the, the criticism of the film, right? That people hit this point and they're like, oh, we kind of went on this big epic journey for nothing. And I'm like, no, no, no. It was not nothing at all. Like this is the whole point of this film. Yeah, it's the difference of expectations. Now that we're distanced from that by many years and we can look at it through the prism of time without all those expectations labored on the film, when I look at this section of the movie, which I really love, like I liked it when we saw it, but obviously for anyone, it takes a little bit to grapple with the truth of the story. This is what it's actually about. This is not what anyone thought. And so it takes some time to process that. But when I think about this scene now and I watch it now, God, it gives me a feeling like the type of science fiction movie we just don't make anymore. Like this to me feels like the type of science fiction movie that would have been made at the end of the 70s, in the late 70s and early 80s. Like this is a dystopian exploration on a level that is dealing with science fiction concepts that would have been right at home in some of the classic pieces of science fiction that established the genre. But uh, aesthetically, I think it's really firing on all cylinders here. And I understand the desire to want an unchallenging uh, vision of the future that's being given to you on a silver platter. But also, that's kind of what the movie's about. Like that desire for this movie to exist in a certain way is also the commentary the movie is actually making. If you separate yourself from what the literal dialogue of the movie is saying and what the actual themes being expressed are. This is a movie about taking personal responsibility for the future. This is a movie about actively engaging with shaping something rather than sitting back and expecting it to be given to you. I mean, you know, coming from my history and falling in love with this, the, 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 the arg for this film because of the parks. I mean, I can't, even though it's exactly what it's named, I can't think of a, a situation that better sort of describes the Tomorrowland problem when it comes to wanting to display futuristic tech to people and kind of the challenges that we've gone through that over the last 60 years and how it constantly had to reinvent itself. And even as it tried to, it didn't really work. Oh, let's give people a nostalgic look at the past. Oh, well, is that just, you know, sort of like, you know, literal, you know, whitewashing of the past, right? Oh, let's give people, you know, a, what if it's a fun and fancy version of the of the past, right? That is way long ago. And then it's like, oh, well, that doesn't connect with modern audiences very well. And so this film and these concepts of what do you do about this future when no one is optimistic about the future is such a like paradigm of exactly what these spaces that these futurists in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's the word. They're now facing the same, the same challenges with these physical spaces. That's a great point. And I don't think I've ever thought about it in that specific context, but this really does function. This dramatic structure does function as a sort of meta commentary on the challenge of designing the theme park Tomorrowland as well. You're making a lot of sense to me right now. Like the idea of there's a pop culture acknowledgement of how difficult it is to keep Tomorrowland up to date. I think that is 
the sort of standard line when people talk about that part of the park. And I think that that's well understood. And so the idea that this movie would implicitly react to that concept and harmonize with the challenge rather than presenting its own vision of what that should be. Because mostly we talk about the aesthetic of the physical section of the park, Tomorrowland. And perhaps it was indeed an audience expectation that if we all agree on the problem, perhaps this movie is the solution. When really the movie is saying, you are the solution for the literal future, perhaps not for the theme park future. But it is harmonizing with that question, that problem, that challenge of designing a future that still feels like the future and is a persistent future. And so I understand that expectation. I understand that desire, but there really was never going to be any version of this movie that fundamentally changed what the Tomorrowland and the theme parks looked like any more than Meet the Robinsons had no material effect on what Tomorrowland looked like. You know, you look at the sort of the timeline of this film and you have this exact timeline of what went on with these physical spaces, right? Very much sponsored by captains of industry, right? In their, in their beginnings, right? From the World's Fair, my God, the amazing pavilions and things that were set up for only two years of operation that companies were willing to pay for as giant advertisements to companies then doing the same thing in these Tomorrowland-style spaces. And then the retrospective challenge that we dealt with as a society where, oh, is this just corporate propaganda? Like that that lack of optimism started creeping in, and 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 rightly so, you know, of, oh, is Monsanto really the best company to be sponsoring a Disneyland ride, like when they're creating Agent Orange? Same thing. I mean, this is the Epcot Center problem, right? Same, same problem. Exxon knew about fossil fuels and climate change. At the same time, they were building this mass, paying for this massive attraction, designed to tell you that, oh, we're using fossil fuels now because it's kind of all we have. And, you know, it works. And like, yes, there's future solutions out there, but fossil fuels are great right now, even though they knew they were great. This is the same, this is the exact same problem as, as, the, as the film demonstrates to us, is this concept of, oh, we asked captains of industry to build the future. They, they did it wrong for us. Oh, we asked these other things, you know, we asked society to help us build the future. They did it wrong. And so these physical spaces highly reflect what goes on the same sort of mindset in the film. I'm so glad you mentioned Adventure Through Inner Space, because I feel like we can't talk about this topic, both thematically and quite specifically to that attraction, without giving a mention to the spectacular Defunct Land episode that was just done on that attraction. I thought it was a brilliant piece of documentary filmmaking, even though it only lives on YouTube. Uh, it might be his best work and is so relevant to this topic that I think we should put a link to that in the show notes this week. Also, too, not to do the defunct land shout out, but talk, you know, he did a fantastic episode about Walt Disney's Epcot, the city and the challenges that it would have faced being an actual city. And I feel like a lot of those same sort of things are reflected are reflected here in this concept. So, you know, if we look back on Tomorrowland, the film, as a single sort of thing, you know, it, it, to me, it's this perfect summarization of the Tomorrowland problem that exists in these physical spaces. The film just manifests it perfectly. 
I can't help but while we're discussing this, imagining what my solution personally would be to that design challenge in the parks if there were no limits to acceptable IP overlays or uh, uh, failed box office runs for this film, like if presented with that challenge of how are you going to retheme Tomorrowland to reflect the movie? I think the general assumption would be a purely aesthetic one. Let's make it look like Casey's pinvitation sequence and take some vague architectural inspiration from the city of arts and sciences. But I think if you wanted to get really ambitious and try something different, which in the face of failure, why not try something really ambitious and different? I think the most appropriate thing you could do is to say, if we want to get ambitious, if we want to think about the future, if we want to do something that's never done before, focus the land on interactivity. Obviously, I am biased to want to focus the design of a land around interactive elements. But what if you did just you go in the complete opposite direction, build the Tomorrowland from the end of the movie, make Tomorrowland purposefully look broken, make the land look like it needs help and you're the only one who can help it. And you can use projection mapping in creative ways. You can use all these technologies they love to use throughout the land and actually have people do a physical and app-based interactive experience throughout the land where they're attempting to reimagine it right before your eyes. And the challenge is put on them to think about why is this the way it is? How can we build it out? What is the solution to this? And in a way, you could make the sequel to Tomorrowland an actual land rather than another movie. And you could build that out that way. That would be really interesting and ambitious. And I say that fully knowing it will never happen. Everything about this idea is untenable. Not only the fact that it's based on a movie that many executives that are still at the company were personally, uh, their reputations were personally damaged by it, but also the idea of land-wide interactivity being a core part of a concept has proven difficult to sell in the current structure of Imagineering. So uh, that's just a little bit of daydreaming on my part. But I mean, God, if it already looks run down and out of date to people what if you just made the theme why is tomorrowland run down and out of date help us solve this and make that the land that would just be crazy cool also completely impossible to exist <laughs> we can dream that one hasten but we can't do it now what you tell me i tell you this was your idea i don't have ideas i just find the people who do so there's no plan that's a plan you just haven't come up with it yet. On a lighter note, back on the platform as Casey starts to accept some of the themes that we've been discussing, Frank turns to Athena and he realizes, you know, this is not a good situation. Nix's reaction could simply be to not say anything and to kill them all outright. So he needs an insurance policy. And of course, he takes out his little pinball one kiloton detonation and asks Athena if she can hide it for him. We get a little bit more on this cute moment in the screenplay where Athena opens up her stomach and has a secret compartment where she can conveniently uh, hide the detonation. A little bit less convenient in how it's described in the screenplay, where Frank asks her, Athena, do you still have a reserve battery compartment? And she says, yes, why? And he says, hide this, will ya? Hands it to her. 
She grins and she lifts up her shirt a little, exposing her stomach, pushes in her belly button, releasing a small drawer-like compartment in her side, removes a battery, tosses it on the ground, and drops the pinball in its place, then seals it back up. So this does explain a little bit of a logic hole there, both in terms of how are these things being powered? And also, why did she have a big open compartment in her stomach? I love the grin on her face, though, when she's putting the pinball in her in her compartment. Because it's very clearly like she's excited that no matter what, she's excited that Frank has a plan. Because she knows Frank's plans generally work. Exactly. And it's him getting back into rare form. It's the it's a little bit of the Frank she once knew, a little bit of a hint of those adventures they might have had. And I also love that directly in the scene description of the screenplay, it's called out. Athena grins, loves seeing him come back alive again. It's just, that's what it is. That's what that moment means. Wow, that's just terrific. Here, hide this. That's an it. Wait. Is that the one kiloton detonation thingy you told me not to play with? Right now, it's our insurance policy. There's a good chance they're gonna try to kill us right out of the gate. So we're just gonna stand here? Well, you wanted to see Tomorrowland. Here it comes. So the hover rail approaches. It looks a little different now. It's not quite the shining silver hover rail. It's a bit more of a gunmetal color, uh, appropriately for Nyx. The windows have now been tinted. It's not quite the lookout at the city. Uh, I admire what we've done. This is more of a just down the line transportation vehicle now. Nix comes out and emerges. And the scene that occurs between our heroes and Nix, I just love this scene. I think it is so well written. I think that the number of levels you can access the sequence on, because there have been such vast chasms of narrative time between when we last saw Nix and now, we're filling in the blanks. We're trying to get any indication we can of these relationships, both between Nix and Frank and Nix and Athena. And this is where we're getting those answers. These interactions without explicitly stating this, 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 and this, we're understanding a little bit more of the character ramifications of what transpired between all of them. Frank. David. You look well. Age becomes you. Thanks. You should try it. I don't know. I think I'll just keep drinking my shake every morning. It comes in chocolate now. Ah, yum. Just even just the first couple of lines where Nix looks at George Clooney for the first time, George Clooney as we know him, and says, Age becomes you, teeing up perfectly, Frank, to be able to say, You should try it. And I think that's just so good. That is such a delicious moment because. If the audience is paying attention, the first reaction here is obviously this guy looks exactly the same as he did in the 60s. You know, Frank was a kid. Now he's an adult, but this guy's identical. So the question on everyone's mind is what's going on? And, you know, Frank just hangs a lantern on it by saying you should try it. And it's just it's a great dig. And it's telling us a little bit about the story. And of course, Nick's follows up with a funny little joke now talking about he'd just prefer to drink his shake every morning. It comes in chocolate now, which was a line that I remember often being recited back by fans immediately after the movie came out as one of their uh, highlight lines of dialogue in the movie. And I think it's quite amusing. And it also calls to the uh, viral uh, World of Tomorrow Science Hour video where Nick's, there's some B-roll between Nix's narration moments that shows a platter 
of various chemicals and pharmaceuticals that theoretically extend life. And we understand that shake has got to be called Rejuvamir. So that's where the Rejuvamir uh, brand name comes from. And uh, it just builds out a little bit more. So for those who have seen that little viral clip that ended up being released on the Blu-ray, what was shot uh, and intended to be part of the marketing campaign. But when the marketing department uh, saw it, they deemed it uh, tonally out of line with the marketing plan that they had set. And I think armchair quarterbacking from many years later, uh, if the marketing had been more tonally in line with that World of Tomorrow Science Hour, I think the outcome may have indeed been different because there's nothing more distilled in terms of the appeal of this movie than that short. And as we talked about before, this is that sort of attitude and that sort of opinion, you know, the kind of snarky nicks is sort of where we end up with this. And that same, you know, as we, as we were talking about the park stuff before, that same sort of marketing gap exists today. Salutations from the future. Tune into Disney's World of Tomorrow, Sunday at 7 p.m. Of course, then Nyx turns to Athena. Hello, Athena. I was starting to think you were never coming home. Where have you been? Which is how the line is scripted, just where have you been? And I love that Hugh Laurie put a little stank on it and added, where, oh, where have you been? Which is just great. I mean, it, you listen to Hugh Laurie in interviews talking about this movie and you see his performance. He loves this story, and I so admire him for that. He wouldn't—he didn't need to sign on to this movie. This is not something that was a necessary evolution for his career, I would argue. But the opportunity to work with Brad Bird, to work with Damon Lindelof, to work with George Clooney, he's just delivering utter perfection in all of his line deliveries, even to the point where, obviously, he's putting his own little spin on it here. And it feels so in character. It feels so appropriate to the moment. And the fact that he as an actor felt free to play, I think that just shows how much he was connecting with the material, that he could spin such an inventive moment like that. It's a little throwaway thing, but I think it just shows how invested everyone was in doing their best work because he's already obviously a brilliant actor. He's brilliant in everything. He's a comedic genius. He's an acting genius, I think. And here we're seeing both of those things on display. And I think he brings with him, it, it, to me, it's the perfect casting. There were some folks who implied that the movie would have been better for them. And I can't argue with that it would have been better for them if the roles had been reversed, if Frank had been played by Hugh Laurie, and if Nix had been played by George Clooney. And that would have been an interesting movie. Sure, I'm sure that would have been great. But I think that that's insulting to the work that he's doing here because it's extremely well done. It's hopeful, it's funny, it's exciting, it's a cracking good story, and uh, I believe it will put a spring in your step. Uh, old and young, I think you'll leave the cinema with a spring in your step. From an expose perspective in this scene, we have this great throwout line. I absolutely love the way Hugh Laurie says, launched an antique rocket ship out of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> like... You gotta laugh every time. <laughs> it's... It's so fantastic, and uh, I love how immediately the next beat you get the stakes of the film. Oh, but that doesn't matter now because we're so close to the end of the countdown. Right, exactly. Along with this window into what he's been doing the whole time by saying normally we'd be working overtime to convince everyone it was an elaborate hoax. So, you know, playing into this conspiracy-minded thinking that he has absolutely made manifest in how he's been behaving. Every single line here is giving you something and it feels so light on its feet. It feels so effortless, but this is very specific calculated screenwriting. And I think it just does so much storytelling under the guise of a pretty 
innocuous conversation. Here at the point, we have Casey speaks up. But this was a little different in the screenplay, wasn't it? We get a little bit more here. And this is one of those moments that I think was almost reaching through the screen directly to predicting what fan theories might have emerged about Nick's. And it's just a great little moment. Uh, Her first question to him is, are you a robot? She's been dealing with so many audio animatronics. Everyone she's met, other than Frank, who got kicked out, Athena, the Gernsbox, the Dave Clarks, she's been dealing with a lot of killer robots. And so I think it's a natural question, particularly if she's picking up on the subtext of the conversation between Nix and Frank. Uh, and his response is great in the screenplay. He says, God, no, despite being accused of being heartless on occasion, I'm 100% organic. Which is hilarious, and uh, I would have welcomed that line being in the movie, but also taking it out not only implies a streamlining of the sequence, but by deleting it, the option is left open if Nix is a robot or not. And certainly in our conversation that we were lucky enough to have with Jeff Jensen, he spun a lot of potential theories about how a sequel could bring Nix back, what a consciousness transfer in the last moment could look like, and... I don't think it's unreasonable to interpret that what he's saying about his chocolate shake might not be as true as he's making it. Uh, he's maybe trying to prop that product up, but indeed is an audio animatronic himself or uh, an avatar style p- body that he's piloting somewhere. Who knows? There could be a Dorian Gray 200 year old Nick sitting in a station somewhere in the middle of the city. What, what do we know? There, the possibilities are literally endless, but it is fun to get a little glimpse at that moment there. And I'm sure Hugh Laurie delivered it beautifully. And hopefully maybe one day it's one of those deleted lines that uh, shows up in a behind the scenes documentary. Nix also starts talking about the terms of Frank's exile. And it's tantalizing because by speculating in previous episodes as to what those terms are, I would really just love to read them. Like there was probably some kind of sci-fi sentencing scene where maybe Nix was wearing a powdered wig sitting on top of a, uh, you know, lectern and sentencing Frank to his exile. You have to wonder if this was the standard sentencing that everyone else got when Tomorrowland folded. Or was it catered specifically to... Certainly Athena and Frank were not the only exiles. There were many others and we don't know what happened to them. And I think that's really fertile ground. If this universe is ever expanded and explored in other ways, who were those other people that were exiled? There are inventions here that are not ascribed to any of the characters. And it would be fantastic to explore who invented some of those other pieces of technology that we're seeing that are not Frank's algorithm, that are not Frank's jetpack, and what shaped the city? Who are those people? Are they alive? Have they been killed? Were the others not as docile as Frank and got themselves hunted down by Dave Clark's? There's really infinite possibilities there as well. Well, Frank, it's been wonderful catching up, but as we were fairly clear about the terms of your exile and the consequences of violating it, I have to ask... What the hell are you doing here? I think she can fix it. I'm sorry, I... Her. I think she can fix it, David. Wait, what? This is not a deleted moment, but I also really appreciate how the screenplay describes Casey's reaction to Frank standing up and saying, I think she can fix it. It's a vote of confidence, and the screenplay describes it like this. Considering she's been routinely dismissed by this guy since the moment she met him, 
Casey is shocked to suddenly receive his support, despite having no damn idea what the hell it is he's talking about. Nix, however, does. Frank steps right up to him, intense. That's just a really sweet description of the moment and really a character-focused bit of scene description that obviously gives Britt Robertson a lot to go off. Telling her the context, the character context of this moment, why this is significant to her. And certainly, the audience is right there with it. Frank has been cranky to her. Frank has been skeptical of her, yet curious. And this is the first moment when he's really throwing his weight behind her in front of someone else who they've just met. So I think it's totally appropriate to call out this moment as a significant one, because even though it passes quickly, it is significant. I've been pirating your signal. Every time you turn it on here, I can see it there. And it flickered. The percentage dropped, David. Impossible. Another moment I love right here when Frank is elaborating to Nix what he's talking about. The percentage dropped, David. And then just they cut to Hugh Laurie and this look on his face, the gulp that he gives. You can see the gulp go down his throat and the way he says the word impossible. This is a man being presented with evidence that is contrary to his interpretation of the world. And certainly, he is resistant to it. This is the first indication we're getting of Nix's resistance, which will ultimately be one of his defining character attributes. But uh, it's so beautifully performed. What could be less scientific than someone running a city of the future who's unwilling to accept the observations of others? So there's this little line here that is cut out of the actual movie, but it's in the screenplay that Frank says, and I would have thought you couldn't kick everyone out who wanted to share this place, but you really put your mind to it and just look at what you accomplished. And I love that in that, in the parentheses, it's as an F you, anything's possible, David. It's just, it's so fantastic. I wish this would have made it into the film. It's it's a scene with like 10 punctuation marks. Every line is a zinger. And this would indeed have been another zinger. The idea that as an F you, Frank is using the previous dialogue from their childhood interaction. Anything's possible, David. And just the the sarcasm he would have soaked into that. It's funny because the little parenthetical there as an FU is also very similar to another movie that Damon Lindelof was not the sole writer on, but a contributing writer to the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. There is a very prominent scene ending line where Spock says to the Vulcan Science Academy, live long and prosper. And there was indeed a similar parenthetical in that scene that said, as an F.U., which was obviously just such a creative moment. I loved that concept of Spock using his traditional goodbye as a middle finger to the people he's denying in that moment. So this is this is another moment like that. Didn't make it into the movie, but certainly an echo. You don't believe me? Let's go find out right now. I'm sorry. What can I fix? The world, Miss Newton. He thinks you can fix the world. Right as Nix states the dramatic stakes by saying he thinks you can fix the world. In the movie, we cut straight to the monitor, but on the Blu-ray, we are treated to a fully shot deleted scene. The effects aren't fully finished, but we at least get to see what the content of it was uh, inside the hover rail. And, you know, there's been a lot of deleted scenes that we've talked about. There's been ones that we've seen, ones that we've not seen. But if you asked me or made me choose, you can restore one deleted scene to the movie. This is the one I would choose. And there's really no contest. I think the dramatic and thematic context offered by this scene 
would have deferred a lot of confusion that I've heard from people who saw the movie and didn't quite understand what happened to Tomorrowland and didn't understand they weren't given enough specific information. And certainly it is an admirable goal to try and make your movie lean, mean, short, not filled with exposition. But the uh, expository dialogue in the scene is really well written. And I think it offers really great context and little glimpses into the state of the world that you really don't get anywhere else. And so I, I would cast my vote for this scene being the most important deleted scene we've talked about yet. Hey. Hey. How bad is it over there? What? Jensen. I mean, just right off the bat, I love that there is a Nick's security guard named Jensen after Jeff Jensen. And this two-line interaction between him and Casey opens up an entire view into the cultural landscape of Tomorrowland as it exists under Nix's reign. And it's just the young guard kind of tries to get Casey's attention and says, how bad is it over there? And she doesn't even know how to respond. She's just like, what are you talking about? And this idea that Nix is probably feeding propaganda to the people who are still in Tomorrowland about what the world is actually like. He's using his visions of the future to completely interpret the current world. And how fantastic. Or they've been into the, they've been to the monitor and have seen it themselves. What I actually really like about this scene is that we get an exposition of how Nix has changed Tomorrowland over the years, especially when you mentioned that all of this power, right? This idea that they're just pulsing so much additional power through the monitor that it has replaced all of the green belts and the trees and all of the beautiful spaces of Tomorrowland. And it's just this pure raw thing that's just feeding Nix's conspiracy, you know, negative broadcasting monitor. It's I'm really sad that this level of world exposition got cut out, cut out at this moment. Right. And it's this. It's a really nuanced concept, too, because it's this idea that the monitor is both taking up resources in terms of developmental bandwidth. Obviously, the space program has been shuttered there. There's nothing else going on. The monitor is everything in Tomorrowland, and it's also feeding Tomorrowland. And so it is this loop of we're putting all of our energy and all of our resources into the monitor, and it is providing everything that we need. And so this idea that they're getting enough energy out of it, so why would we focus on anything else other than this, you know, that it plays into this concept of the self-fulfilling prophecy. And what a great, what a great two line quip with how much power do you need as also being a complete quip against David Nix, which is fantastic. Yeah. And then Nix coming back at that equally great by saying, Oh, it's really good to see you again. No one's implied that I'm a dictator in years. <laughs> yeah. Um, And then I love, you know, I love that you still have inquisitive Casey, right? She notices that the city is empty. You know, how many, how many live here? And then of course, Nick says just enough. Yeah. And that's two words that tell an entire story. Nick saying just enough plays all the way back to the first scene in the hall of invention. He is a man that only cares about productivity, about observable, a man purely of operational efficiency and uh, complete lack of imagination. And we're seeing both visually and in these character interactions, the consequence of a lack of imagination and simply taking the existing concepts and iterating them into something rather than continuing to explore new invention. Not as green as I remembered it. 
Grass and trees are beautiful to look at, but they don't generate the kind of power we need. How much power do you need? Really, it's good to see you again, Frank. No one's implied I'm a dictator in years. It's so empty. How many people live here? Just enough. I thought the plan was to share this place, show it to the world. What happened? The monitor happened. I like that we still see this inquisitive Casey and she's not just silent and kind of being there. And that's what I'm sad was cut out of the film is you still see her pulling at the wires a little bit. She finally got here. She wants to know more about it. What happened? What? And again, not to relate this to the parks thing, but that 100% fits for the parks too. You see all this empty track. You see these weird buildings that don't necessarily have walkways that connect up correctly and whatever else. And you're like, what happened here? What was here? Why, why was this scene as being so amazing just so recently ago? It also serves as another moment that Casey acts as the audience surrogate. The question, what happened, is absolutely central on the audience's mind at this moment. And the power of having a character just voice the question of the audience is so essential. And of course, all Frank gives her in this particular moment is the monitor happened. And when they arrive at the monitor, this is a scene that's in the movie, but there were individual lines even within this existing scene that were removed and made some of the things we've been discussing more explicit. Uh, Frank observes that Nix has made some upgrades. Welcome back to the monitor, Frank. Looks like you made a few upgrades. The sphere now generates more energy than every wind, solar, and photosynthetic power source we had combined, rendering them obsolete. It's something, isn't it? Yeah, it's something. And then we have, you know, the full reveal of the monitor as the platform lowers down beneath them. And, uh, you know, we have this side conversation as they're going on their way up into the main sphere itself, where Casey wants to know if there's something that she should do. And of course, Frank, uh, not a huge help, says, just be yourself. And she nods and says, gotcha. In the screenplay, she doesn't let it rest at that. Uh, She follows up by saying, well, what does that actually mean? And Frank says something very interesting. It means I'm betting that lightning will strike twice. So Frank is exhibiting a little bit of faith here. He's taking a leap of faith by saying that flicker I saw was something I've never seen before. And I'm willing to let myself believe that it will happen again, that it was not a fluke. We've enhanced the interface significantly, but it still functions on your original algorithm. You have something to show me, Frank? Show me. So, of course, they move into this beautiful set that they've built, this red-orange grid that represents the monitor that hasn't been turned on yet. And so beautifully shot, such an iconic thing. I know some of even the non-Tomorrowland fan accounts that share screenshots from the movie, like One Perfect Shot, this is the one they show from Tomorrowland, is the above, the top-down shot of the monitor base moving into this orange room. So beautiful, so unique, so interesting. And another one of those things that makes me just feel like, man, this feels like it's ripped right out of a 1970s, 1980s sci-fi movie. Like this feels classically sci-fi, not just for the ideas being described, but how they're being portrayed visually. 
And and so there, there's a line that's in the movie here. And as we get into the introduction of what the monitor is and really finally telling the audience what is going on, what is this all about? What forces of nature have they played with that they shouldn't have that has been described in breathless dialogue leading up to this as being so verboten that it changed everything? Uh, And it's introduced by Nix saying, Frank had the novel idea of building this machine so we could keep in touch. And I don't think it struck me at the time, but now the more we've been talking about the monitor as social media, as the web, digital technology, connective technology, it seems like the movie is just kind of setting that up right here by describing the early version. The first inspiration, the first intention of this technology was to connect us in the same way the internet was. You know, when we were when we were willing to dream about what the internet could do and how it could bring us together and didn't have any indication of what the other edge of that blade could be, that is how they're describing the beginning of the monitor here. So it seems like they're setting the stage for that metaphor pretty explicitly right here. And I just, I love that. How is this possible? We are millions of exponential deviances away from the dimension you call home. Frank had the novel idea of building this machine so that we could keep in touch. This is three days ago. Relatively. That's space-time humor. So as we get into the part of the film where they are discussing what this is, how it functions, what it has shown them, and then therefore what the reaction has been to it, a question comes to my mind that still lingers, which is, what indeed was the Walker algorithm? We know that for the sake of character, he is dealing with a sense of grief over having been involved with this at all, a sense of regret. But from a literal practical science fiction perspective, what would have necessitated that algorithm to allow them to communicate across the dimensional veil that would then allow for all that time-bending potential? Did Frank know about that potential? Was Frank aware of how it could have been used? Or was this, in fact, simply the only way he could find to have that instantaneous communication through something that takes such extreme energy to physically traverse. I'm not sure. I mean, this also could have been uh, like the, when I saw the film and I, we were, I was interpreting the algorithm on our own, I think at dinner that night after we were overwhelmed, I remember thinking that it existed as this sort of, we want to be able to see, we want to build an algorithm to see what the world's future stays like so we can stay ahead of it. And we can really like bring those benefits to society. And I think what happened in in a storyline, and we actually we get some of this in the in a deleted scene that's coming up. Casey starts using the machine. She's a natural at it. I love the line of like, "Did you train her?" And then we get the classic: "She just knows how things work." From Frank. <laughs> Just it's great. Um, I just met her yesterday. Um, and she scrolls into Canaveral. She sees the apocalypse. And in the in a deleted Nix scene, Casey asks, how? And Nix says, we don't know exactly. It could be anything from catastrophic climate change to nuclear war. Whatever the cause, it unleashes massive levels of interference that blind us for the six weeks leading up to the inevitability. And she responds, the inevitability. And then Nick steps forward. The stage is his. And we've got another Nick speech. It wasn't just the one at the very end. He has another speech here. And Nick says, (laughs) 
It wasn't always like this. At first, the monitor showed us worldwide Armageddon one out of every 10 times. That gave us hope. Of course, we attempted intervention, introduced technologies that were cleaner, safer. We tried to influence mankind away from violence and war. But whatever we glanced at in the future, no matter what we did, the probability of apocalypse increased. One out of every five views, then 50%, 70%. And finally, it was the only thing we saw, 100% of the time. Scientifically, we called this the conclusive outcome. In layman's terms, it's simply fate. Either way, it is certain, it is unavoidable, and it is coming. Which we get Wonderful. in the film. Now, a fantastic speech that was deleted, but my guess is how Tomorrowland from a aspect stumbled into this is Frank went, okay, I'm going to build the, I've figured out this algorithm to figure out what society in on earth Maine looks like in the future. And then we can use that to develop new technologies that'll, uh, that'll advance that at a rate faster than what we had before. And I think like this was one of the times they turned it on. It's like, Oh crap, we saw an apocalypse how do we prevent that mistake? And then it became this obsession about preventing the apocalypse, which through Nix's misguidance became causing the apocalypse. And it is interesting now that we're breaking down kind of beat by beat, how this information is communicated. An interesting little wrinkle is the concept that it is treated as a revelation later, which we'll discuss in a future episode, the concept that it is not simply looking but broadcasting as well. And this concept would be established, theoretically, there is a connection to the origins of this technology, which Nix obviously described as a way to connect. So the idea of that connection really does lay the groundwork for this idea of the door swinging both ways. Because in even the explanation we get in the movie, which is not as detailed as this, they're really focusing on one direction of this, which is Tomorrowland looking in. Tomorrowland looking at our world, but that connection isn't so easily severed. There are ramifications to that observation, just like we see in subatomic particles. Observation changes the state, right? This is the essence of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which Star Trek cleverly skirts itself around the impossibility of transportation by saying, oh, we installed a Heisenberg compensator. Damn, I really wish I knew how that worked. Oh, the laws of physics don't allow for that. We, we got a compensator. We got a laws of physics compensator we installed. But these are the, the logical leaps that we accept in the idea of science fiction. Uh, that is to say, it's not science fact. If it were purely based on the dictums of science fact, there would be no fictional aspect to the technological side. And so we allow there to be this concept of tachyons, which I understand that some people have found to be much too overused in science fiction, but I think that their inclusion here fits appropriately with the thematics of what we're discussing. So I have no problem with the monitor's observational powers being rooted in the detection of tachyon particles. Great speech, though. Great little moment. And certainly... We get a lot of it through performance, but it would have been nice to just have it spelled out explicitly. Just get a little history. It is a hard sell to have a moment that really is just, we're going to fill you in right now when we do see all the consequences of that. So it doesn't seem as necessary to be there, uh, but still uh, a nice little moment to observe here. And just, 
I mean, to, to Britt Robinson's character, you have to imagine like the acting when she's seeing these various cities around the world undergoing catastrophe. When you think about how she's just in a giant green screen room and not seeing any of it, it's just she did a fantastic job here. And she's, I love how determined she seems that there's this. I'm going to find this one place in the world that's not affected by this. I'm going to find that place. And, that, and and Frank grabs her and says, stop, because he knows that she won't find it. He has accepted that inevitability just like Nix has. Not to the same level because he's there. If he had fully accepted it, he never would have gotten Casey and Athena onto that rocket ship. So there is a glimmer of hope still for Frank Walker here. We're starting to see the depths of Nix's depravity as a villain in this scene as well, because, you know, you've got that great line, which is in the movie. Oh, Frank, three decades of exile and you still don't understand. These people are driven by savagery. Talking, of course, about us here in our dimension. There's a little extra nugget. Uh, <laughs> there's a little extra nugget in the screenplay after that line where he says, giving them access to our advancements would be like handing a flamethrower to a Neanderthal. It's it's so insulting, but exactly the perspective that this character is coming from, because he believes if we told them about this place, then that would happen here to us, then nothing would survive. But it hasn't happened yet. Actually, it has happened. You just haven't accepted it. Well, I don't accept it. This is a lot for Casey to take in. This is, a, this is a big moment for her. She's following along, but still, this is very difficult information to accept because, you know, there are two adults in the room who have essentially accepted that their infallible creation has told them with increasing accuracy, their predictive models have gotten so good that our doom is inevitable. And there's just something within her that's still pushing against that. That cannot be. There is no unwinnable scenario she's the captain kirk here she's unwilling to accept the kobayashi maru of this moment we have to the only way to get out of it is to believe that we can and you're seeing that really come to a head because she's being shown all the evidence everything that they have uh and yet she still persists and in the screenplay she asks a question as well she says if you can't change the future why do you keep looking at it and Nick says, because it is history, young lady. And if we don't observe it, we are doomed to repeat it. That, to me, strikes as a little bit of a cop-out from Nick's. Certainly, it must be what he believes. But I think Casey has made a very incisive comment with her question. And it's one that's relevant, I think, to our lives, which is, you say you can't change it. But if that's really true, what's the necessity of continuing to surround yourself with it? You know, if we actually do believe that nothing can change... Does the very act of us continuing to check in mean that there's this bit of hope within us as there is within Frank that something can change? Is that part of the I can't look away from a train wreck aspect of social media and the doom scrolling? I mean, 100 percent. And, you know, I think we see this with Nick's right. You know, his mentality of like, if I just keep broadcasting, not, you know, keep keep having this idea that people are obsessed with this negativity and this like maybe they'll change maybe they'll change themselves right and we really get that in the last speech you get this real sense of yeah i mean i know i know i do it there's this this inevitableness right this sort of like my 
monitor that I've been pirating the signal for the last freaking year has been looking at local COVID cases, right? And just really hoping like, this is gonna this is gonna be the week that we start to see the strong decline. This is gonna be and then and then when it's declining, you're like, okay, great. Like we're 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 doing it now. Like I'm having like I'm personally having a great impact on it. Like I'm solving it, right? It's very justifying. And I think that what Nix wants to see is he wants to see that he's accepted it, but he also kind of has it and he wants to see it change. We have this conversation, Nix sees the inevitable fate, he full-on mansplains to the girl, like, you just haven't accepted it yet. And this this complex thing happens, and she goes, it hasn't happened. And she walks away angry, and there's that flicker, right? She is angry and frustrated, and she doesn't see it. But Nix and Frank sees it. And this expression in Frank is, look, here it is, our ticket to the future, whatever else. And Nix is just dead in the face because he has already accepted that it's going to happen. So what's his solution? We'll just knock him out. And I also love the line that prompts Casey to declare that she doesn't accept it because it's a line that pretty much cements Nix as that metaphorical figure representing the deterministic universe, the cause and effect and nothing else. There is no free will. There is only determinism. There is only fate. And that line that he says is, actually it has. You just haven't accepted that yet. Going back to this matrix level idea of you've already made the choice. Now you're trying to understand it. The idea of looking at the world outside of time, anything that appears to be a decision the result has been predetermined. You just don't have access enough to the information. So making the decision is really understanding one that has already been made. This is Nix's point of view. There is a purely deterministic universe, and any concept of free will is an illusion of perspective. That's the side that our villain is being put on. And Casey, obviously, being the agent of free will that she is, declares, I don't accept that. And we see the results all around them. Uh, the conflict in this moment reveals itself to be a metaphysical one. Nix is so unwaveringly confident in his ability to tap into that deterministic inevitability of the images that he's been shown with increasing frequency, as we've just learned, that he has abdicated his own free will. And in doing so, he fulfills that prophecy himself. Casey refuses to accept the inevitability and therefore opens up these new, previously unseen pathways to the future. And I think this is where the metaphor has fully revealed itself. There can be no free will if we, ironically, willingly abdicate it in response to a seemingly complete view of deterministic reality. The hubris that we have the ability to tap into all the observable aspects of nature. The idea that we have broken down the subatomic particle and understand all of the forces that are acting upon it and write it off as totally uh, quantum indeterministic. The idea that random events occur rather than with humility accepting that perhaps there are forces acting on this that we aren't yet able to observe. At this moment, these characters have been placed at the nexus of humanity's fate. It's a mythological moment here, and the very dialogue of their conversation is being shown to have enormous consequences, you know, a dialectic that's being projected onto the sphere in which they're standing. It's such a great visual 
expression of the concepts they're discussing. You know, they're talking about the world. They're in this globe that is showing them the world, and yet they're separate from it. And all of that debate between them is shown to have these immediate consequences. And of course, this, as before, at the beginning of this section we're talking about today, challenges Nix's worldview to the point that he rejects it. It has not convinced him. The truth has been revealed. The fate of the future of our world now rests in the hands of our three heroes. Nix has presented his thesis as fact, and their antithesis has been proven before his very eyes, but he refuses to accept it as anything more than an insignificant aberration. And with a tuning fork to the neck, Frank passes out as we cut to black and reach the end of the sequence for this episode. Before they can find a solution to the cataclysmic failure of Tomorrowland, they'll need to reckon with everything they've just learned and hope for an epiphany. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear about any memories that you might have from the first time you saw Tomorrowland or anything you thought about inside this episode, and we might play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we do our best to nix the speech. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers, dreamers can, can stick, stick together. together.